As you're taking your seats, you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Well, as you're kind of getting yourself situated in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I wanted to remind you that we're in kind of the middle of a series that we started a few weeks ago called The Culture of Redemption. And this is really our attempt to remind ourselves, or if you're new, to show you and to explain to you who we are as a church. What are the distinctive characteristics of a church and of believers who are redeemed? What are the things that we value most? What are the things that define us best? And you'll see on the uh, side uh, on these banners beside me that these are the distinctives. These are the, the, the aspects of our culture that we hold dear to us. Uh, ever since we, we launched this church eight years ago now, uh, I, I've had multiple conversations with people who are walking in the doors of the church, who are maybe looking for a church home, and uh, they're asking questions. Some of them asking very good questions, some of them not asking questions at all, and, it, and it's not uncommon for me to come across people who are maybe visiting and, and kind of doing a little bit of church shopping, in the best sense of that word, to, to explain to me what they're looking for in a church. Um, and then people who maybe don't offer that, it's, it's actually one of the first questions I love to ask people. Tell me a little bit about what you're expecting from a church. What do you believe uh, a, a church that you want to go to should look like? What are the things they should value most? It's a really incredibly important question. And one, it's a question, by the way, that every Christian should be able to answer when it comes to the church. And I thought it would be a good place to start this morning by simply maybe asking us to consider what is the most important aspect or distinctive in a church. Let me rephrase it another way. If you were to look for a church, if you were shopping for a church, what is the most important thing to look for in a church? The most important thing to find in a church. Many people that I've come across, sadly, can't even answer that question. Or, they can answer it to the best of their abilities, but oftentimes they find themselves focusing on more secondary things like music styles or preferences, ministry programs, an impressive building, a technology that's been implemented into the church that helps them better understand. But if you were just to peel back the layers and if you were to look at scripture and really understand what God says, here's the conclusion you would come to, preaching. The preaching of God's word is far and away, and it always has been, the distinguishing mark of the true church. It is, by all accounts, the most important part of any true church of Jesus Christ. And, and you say, well, why is that? Why, why is the preaching? Isn't that a little bit self-serving, Ian? Listen, because if a church faithfully preaches the word of God and allows its life to be shaped by it, everything else will eventually fall into its proper place. You see that? How do we know about any of the other distinctives? How do we know what purposeful disciple making looks like? What courageous evangelism is supposed to entail? What strategic church planting is all about? How do we know what fervent prayer looks like? How do we know what passionate worship even means if God does not speak and reveal it to us? How do we know who we are? How do we know who God is? How do we know what holiness is and obedience means? We know nothing unless God reveals it to us. And so, bold preaching is essential for every faithful church, and it is essential for every faithful follower of Jesus 
Christ. I've mentioned in the previous weeks that passionate worship is kind of the umbrella, the overarching umbrella to all the other distinctives. It's the one that all of the other ones point to. And if that's true, that passionate worship is the umbrella, listen, then bold preaching is the foundation. Everything is built upon this and flows from it, and it is all pointing towards becoming passionate worshipers of God. A culture has to be formed from something. Our culture in this church, at Redemption Church, is formed by the word of God through the means of bold preaching. So we naturally have to just ask this question, what does this look like and what does it mean for me? You know, sometimes it's more helpful to describe something by what it's not than what it is. And actually, that's kind of what Paul is doing in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter two. He's comparing and contrasting the preaching and proclaiming of God's word with what the world does and what is widely celebrated and embraced by the world. And what he wants to see is this, like what we're doing and what we're offering is not like the world. It's not like that. And he begins in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 by saying this. Let's follow along together. He says in verse 1, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here, really, Paul explains to us what bold preaching is by telling us what it's not, and here's what we can deduce from that. Bold preaching, first, does not cater to the world. Bold preaching does not cater to the world. That's not the objective, to make the word of God palatable to the world. That's not our purpose. It's not our goal. He begins in verse one by reminding the the church in Corinth that when he had come to them initially, before they had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one that they had now accepted and are now considered, as we see right here in verse one, brothers, they're now brothers because they've been brought into the faith through the message that Paul proclaimed. Paul says, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The idea of lofty speech was something that was heavily celebrated in the Greco-Roman world, the the culture that the Corinthians were saturated with. They loved this idea of lofty speech. It can be defined as as weighty or, or height or excessive in speech, an elevated kind of speech, high sounding rhetoric, good sounding speech, big words, very impressive. So it's the culture that Paul was trying to reach. The Greco-Roman world prized rhetoric, the ability to speak well and compellingly, powerfully, profoundly, philosophically. I mean, to wax eloquently on any given topic was to be seen as, as virtuous in this culture, something that was so prized and wowed crowds. Now, Paul is not saying that the ability to speak well is unimportant. You should know that. He's not diminishing or devaluing the giftedness of some of God's people and even the preachers of God's word. He's simply saying it's not the most important thing and it's not even necessary, by the way. 
Paul's saying, look, we, we don't put our eggs in the basket of good communication and compelling communication. That's not where the power comes from. That's not the thing we value most. That's not the thing that ultimately changes lives. And yet that's what the world around Paul believed. The content was in some ways less important than the way in which that content was being communicated in a way that was loved and accepted, that didn't contradict or conflict with the lives of the individuals listening. Paul's speaking, he says, came without any pomp and he elicited no applause. He wasn't the most gifted orator around and he was okay with that. You see, Paul understood something very important that we need to understand about ourselves if we're called to gospel ministry, if we're called as followers of Christ to share Christ, it's just this, that we are heralds of a message. Paul would say back in chapter one, verse 17, he says, for Christ, listen to this, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Just notice here, Paul says, first of all, Christ sent me. You see, I'm a herald, I'm an ambassador, I'm a servant of the one who sent me. In the ancient world, a a herald was incredibly important. You see, a king, when he had a message to give to, to all of those who lived in his land, he couldn't just send out an email. He couldn't kind of communicate it through technological means. He had to send an individual on his behalf who would then communicate his message verbatim. The messenger had no ability to tamper with the message. He had to present the message on behalf of the king as if in one sense he was the king himself because he was standing for the king. He was speaking for the king and the way he spoke mattered immensely. Paul says, I'm not seeking glory from crowds. I'm not seeking the applause of man and I'm not seeking to impress an audience. I'm a herald, I'm a messenger of the king. What's so interesting to think about when you're, when you're reading the scriptures, when you're reading the New Testament in particular, it's helpful to understand that Paul, when he was moving around from town to town, village to village, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he wasn't walking into a Christian culture. Do you think about that? When you think about how Christianity has been spread far and wide today, almost anywhere you go on the planet, people have heard of Jesus Christ. They've heard the gospel message. There are many countries who have been established upon a Judeo-Christian worldview. Paul was walking into places that were pre-Christian cultures, places that were filled with religion, but places where the name of Jesus was not even heard or known. I just think that's fascinating to contemplate because to preach with boldness is easy when Christianity is known and widely accepted, isn't it? When you know there's already a crowd of people, an audience of people who appreciate the message and embrace the message and celebrate the message. Paul had no guarantee of any of that everywhere he went. In fact, he experienced constant beatings, constant persecution, constant opposition. To preach with boldness where Christ is not known and not believed and conflicts with the cultural norms and beliefs and behaviors requires real boldness. Now, we are living in a culture that has shifted away from Christianity. We were once Uh, And we had been founded upon a Judeo-Christian worldview. Christianity, at one point, had had been widely embraced and accepted. But we are currently living, right now, in what's been deemed a post-Christian culture. 
a culture where Christianity was once prevalent, but now has become abnormal. A culture that once embraced Christianity in many senses, or at least tolerated it, but now we live in a culture that it conflicts with their values to the degree to which people now reject it and actually hate it. I was listening to Albert Moeller, the uh, leader of the Southern Baptist Seminary, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Kentucky. He has a, uh, a podcast that I listen to almost every morning called The Briefing, where he assesses things that are happening in the world and in our culture from a Christian worldview. And he said something interesting this past week. He was in Canada, and he was actually preaching at a conference that I was at, and he was, he was speaking there. But he noted the next morning after he had preached at the conference that I attended um, that looking at Canada was actually a fascinating reality for many people outside of Canada, including people in the United States. And he, he, he said, in many ways, the Canadian Christian evangelical culture is paving the way forward, and many people outside of Canada are beginning to look to Canada to see how they are handling a post-Christian culture, because places like the United States are quickly following. He said, in many ways, the faithful Christians here and now are modeling for others what it will look like to live in and to reach a culture that by and large has rejected and abandoned Christianity and the worldview that has shaped this very country. May may I be as bold as to suggest to us this morning that reaching a post-Christian culture requires a renewed commitment to bold preaching. Not a fleeing from it, as the temptation may lead us, but a commitment to it. Bold, by the way, does not mean arrogant. Bold does not mean harsh or rude, but it does mean a renewed trust in the power of God's word and a renewed rejection of the desire to cater to the world. There are so many Christians who believe if we can just make the world like us, if we can do things that make us acceptable to them, then maybe they'll like our gospel and our Jesus too. Maybe our message will be acceptable to them too. P.T. Forsyth, pastor and theologian in the 20th century, argued that when in history the church was at its most effective, she did not lead the world nor echo it, she confronted it. The Christian preacher, he goes on to say, is not the successor of the Greek order, but the Hebrew prophet. The Hebrew prophet who often stepped into the culture that was so opposed to God, in such hatred of God, in such rebellion to God, and said, listen, God in his love is reaching out to you. Thus saith the Lord. And so we need to see Paul saying to us that we do not cater to the world's itching ears. The world, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy 4, will surround themselves, will pile up teachers to suit their own desires, who will scratch their itching ears. In other words, it will give them everything they want to hear, but the word of God comes along and says, we don't give people what they want to hear, we give them what they need to hear. While, by the way, we don't despise or diminish good communication or tools of communication, I mean, you see here, I mean, we're using PowerPoint, we don't devalue that, but you just need to hear in this church, listen, we we don't put our eggs in that basket, right? Nobody is getting saved here from a PowerPoint slide, amen? We are committed to not catering to the world's appetites and cravings. You just need to know when, when you come into church, this is not a TED Talk. This is not a motivational speech. 
We do not seek to impress and entertain. We seek to confront and proclaim. And what is it that we are proclaiming? What is it that confronts the culture and the world around us and those who do not know God? Listen to what Paul says. It is the testimony of God. It's not our opinions. It's not our ideas. It's not our desires. It's the testimony of God. It is the very word of God. It is the very voice of God. It is the very truth of God. That's what Paul says we offer to the world. It is the truth that is revealed by God himself. We come to boldly preach the word, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. We preach the word. We preach the word. We preach the word. That's all we have to offer. We have nothing else of value. There's nothing else that can change and transform somebody's life. We preach the word in season and out of season. We exhort, we reprove, we rebuke with complete patience. This is the call of the church of Jesus Christ. This is a part of the culture of who we are. It's important to understand that the importance of preaching rests in its content, not in its function. Let me say it like this. Preaching is not the reason the word works. The word is the reason preaching works. You get that? Preaching is not the reason the word works. The word is the reason that preaching works. That's why bold preaching is, secondly, uh, does not compromise the truth. Paul moves in one sense, focusing on the, the style of communication that the world loves, the world values, into now the content that's communicated. And we can compromise both in style and form, as well as in content. In verse 2, here's what he says. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He resolved to know one message, the key message of all the Bible, Jesus Christ and him crucified, the message that is at the very heart and soul of redemption, the message that all the Bible points to, the message that all the Bible flows from. I love this. I determined, he says. You just, just think about that word for a moment. When you're determined to do something, what does that mean? It means, first of all, that what you're about to attempt is not easy, doesn't it? that you must be determined, you must be resolved, there must be some tenacity in what you're doing because there's obstacles in your path that make it incredibly difficult to carry out the mission. Paul knew this as he entered the city of Corinth. He knew there was many temptations. He knew there were many roadblocks. And so he makes it very clear, listen, I was determined to come and preach one message and one message alone. The herald in the ancient world was on assignment to deliver the message of the king. It was not his message. He did not have editorial authority over it. He could not change the message to suit the crowd and the church. Listen, neither can we. The message is clear. Jesus, and all that, and all that, that entails, all that it means, Jesus Christ and him crucified, the gospel message, the heart and soul of the word of God. You see, if Paul was to walk into Corinth, in some senses you could say, you know, Paul, how committed are you to this message? I mean, how, how focused are you, Paul, on this message? Well, I mean, Paul, well, what do you think of politics? Jesus. Well, Paul, what do you think about what's happening in culture? Jesus. Paul, what do you think about the New Corinthian Cafe? Jesus. Okay, look, it's a bit extreme. Obviously, Paul wouldn't have been um, so absorbed with the message that he wouldn't be thinking about all these other things and talking about all these things. Would you humor a little bit of my hyperbole this morning? 
It's just so simple. What he's making it clear is that he was so committed to this message, he would not abandon it, he would not be distracted from it. He knew what he came to preach and he wasn't going to be derailed from this simple objective. He wasn't coming to get involved in politics. He wasn't coming to get involved in just social change. And because this message was so unpopular, Paul addressed, by the way, the, the unpopularity of the message in this culture. I mean, I mean, in 1 Corinthians, if you read chapter 1, beginning at verse 17, all the way through the beginning of chapter 2, Paul really gives this picture of how foolish the message is. He says the, the world looks at the message of the gospel and says it is utterly ridiculous, it's foolish to suggest that a God can die and that a God would die for sinners. You see, it's foolish to the world because the world loves and values a message that puts them in the driver's seat. Do you realize that? The gospel message reminds us that we're not the ones in the driver's seat. The gospel message reminds us that we're more sinful than we could possibly fathom. The gospel reminds us that we can't control our own fate. In other words, we can't be the kind of people who get ourselves back to God. We're the kind of people who are so wretched, so sinful, so unworthy that God in his grace alone has to come for us. And listen, that conflicts with the very nature of sin. Sin is bent in on itself. The sinful heart says, I'm not that bad. I can do it. I can make myself acceptable and pleasing to God. But the word of God comes and confronts that reality. And so the Bible tells us right here, listen, that the world looks at the gospel message and says, that's foolish. That's foolish. Preaching is not a motivational speech or self-help advice. It's not the place for worldly philosophies or scientific theories. Listen church, this is so important to understand. The pulpit is the throne of the word of God with King Jesus as its focus. Paul would say in chapter one, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ crucified. What a model for the Christian life. What a banner to hang over your life this morning if you are in Christ. We preach Christ crucified. You see, bold preaching is always Christ-centered and Christ-saturated. Christ crucified is more than just the means of forgiveness and salvation. It actually informs our total vision of the Christian life. Anyone who comes and says, you preach too much gospel as a Christian, anybody, any Christian who says, you preach too much gospel, listen, does not understand the importance of the gospel. On one occasion, someone came to Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, and said, all your sermons sound alike. He replied, and so they should. First, I take a text and make a beeline to the cross. And you've got to be careful with that. Because, listen, Christ is not in every text, but you just need to hear that you can get to Christ from every text. And you should be. Does that mean... What Paul is saying here, that he didn't preach anything else, that he only preached the gospel? No, of course not. He's trying to tell us that the primary focus of all preaching, of all biblical preaching, the primary focus of all the word of God, ultimately ends up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
But we know, we know that Paul taught the whole counsel of God. He was in Corinth for a year and a half. And Acts chapter 18, verse 11 says, teaching the word of God among them. But the heart and soul of the word of God and therefore his preaching was always the gospel of Jesus Christ. We preach Christ and him crucified. Bold preaching does not compromise the truth of Christ just because the world hates the message and does not want to accept it. Bold preaching won't compromise the truth of Christ nor the meaning of the word of God in every text that is preached. It's important to understand that good preaching is, as we have on our, our pillar, expository and applicational. Expository gives the idea, listen, that we find the meaning of every text in the text itself. The goal is not to impose a meaning onto the text, is to dig out and explain the meaning of every text that stands on its own merit. It is to show how every text is to be understood and how every text is connected back to the gospel of Jesus Christ or points to it. There are really only two different ways to preach, either by exposition or by imposition. Either preaching explains the God-intended meaning of the text, or it sinfully imposes human speculation onto the text. In this church, we will not compromise the truth, and by God's grace, we will continue to do the former, to faithfully exposit and explain the God-intended meaning of every text so that we can faithfully apply the text properly to our own lives in the context we are living in. But to do that faithfully, notice this third, that bold preaching does not care about reputation. If we're not going to compromise the truth, if we're going to tell people exactly what God says from every text of his word, bold preaching requires that we do not care about reputation, our personal reputation. Paul says in verses three and four, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul paints this picture that he comes as this meek, weak individual. He doesn't come with this bombastic, strong, confident, domineering style and personality. You can look at this and understand that, that when it comes to preaching the word of God, it's less about the form of preaching and more about the form of the preacher. The man in his way of conduct must always match his message. Weakness and foolish characterize, listen, the message we proclaim, that's what Paul has made abundantly clear in the first chapter here. Weakness and foolishness, listen, that too must characterize the messenger. I was told early on in my ministry before I planted this church by a mentor of mine, a pastor, a preacher, he, he said, that his prayer before every message he preached was, God, if you have to make me look, at a, look like a fool so that you can look great, please do it. In other words, God, if I have to sacrifice my reputation, what people think of me so that they'll think better of you, please, Lord, do whatever it takes. It's not about me. It's, it's not about what people think of us. It's about what they think of Jesus. And yet we're so driven so often by what they think of us instead of thinking so much about what they actually think of Jesus. Paul came with such a humble demeanor, with weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Both his words and actions were the exact opposite of the self-confident order of the Greco-Roman world. 
The message was weak, and Paul has no problem saying, so is the messenger. If you're looking at me, Paul is saying, to be someone you can lean on, to be your savior, you're looking in the wrong place. The weakness that Paul describes here, it's possible. Some commentators wrestle with what Paul is talking about. Some people think he maybe is talking about a physical ailment. It's widely accepted that Paul was suffering with some serious physical ailments in his eyes and often in pain. But the weakness he's talking about here, I believe, more likely reflects the general sense of inadequacy for the task. I think the idea of weakness and in fear and in much trembling, it paints this entire picture of his his entire disposition that, that sense of inadequacy for the task of evangelism, this inadequacy, inadequacy of the task of proclaiming the gospel message, uh, the, the looking in the mirror and recognizing who, who you truly are and realizing who is adequate for such things. Like, I, I'm not adequate to do this, Lord. I'm not strong enough. By the way, do you know there's a pattern in scripture of the men God uses, of, of the women God uses? You think of Moses, right? Speech impediment. Think of Isaiah, the man of unclean lips. Jeremiah said, I'm just a youth, Lord. God loves to use weak things. He loves to use weak things. And Paul is making that so clear through the Spirit of God. Paul was not concerned with some self-styled or self-diagnosed strength and ability, some bravado And this, by the way, wasn't a lack of confidence in Paul. It just was a lack of self-confidence. His confidence was in God and in his power, not in him and in his own strength. There are many today who sway people, even in the evangelical world. They influence people, they sway people by sheer force of personality, by their charisma, by their giftedness. We live in an evangelical cult of celebrity. We gravitate towards those who project an air of strength and confidence, oftentimes, in part because that's who we long to be in our flesh. Even the Corinthians, when Paul had come to them, one of the issues he has to deal with with them is, is the, the people that they were attaching themselves to. Remember the preachers who had come and, and those who had baptized them, and I am of Paul, and I am of Paulus, and I am of Paul. And Paul says, Are You kidding me? I'm of Jesus. You see, we stake our reputation on the name of the celebrity we look to, of the person we value most, and Paul says we need to stake our reputation on the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's reputation was one of weakness, not strength, wasn't it? Before the world's eyes? And wasn't his entire ministry characterized by weakness? He was humble and lowly. He was mocked and ridiculed. He was not much to look at. In fact, the word of God tells us he was quite unimpressive in many ways. So how can we strive to be more loved and respected than Jesus? Let's think about that. How can we seek to be more admired and loved and valued in the world's eyes than Jesus was? When your heart is fixed on your own reputation, You just need to understand this. Your reputation will be your own downfall. And in doing that, you forfeit more than you gain, especially the fame of the name of Jesus Christ. 
Pride and self-importance and competition must be replaced with weakness, fear, and much trembling. And I just would ask you, church, do you ever feel weak and inadequate for the things of the Lord? Good. So did Paul. Do you ever have fear when it comes to being obedient to the Lord and evangelism and sharing Christ, fear of failure, fear of consequences, fear of rejection? You ever feel that? You ever feel that pressure pushing in on you and pushing you away from doing what you know God's calling to you? Good, so did Paul. You ever experience much trembling at the thought of standing up for Jesus? Good, so did Paul. And look how God used him. What might God do with us if we simply embrace weakness? The message of the gospel is magnificent. The messengers are not. I mean, everybody turn to your neighbor and say amen. (laughs) We're not that special. We're not that magnificent. None of us are. But the message we proclaim sure is The God we proclaim sure is. If God is not using you greatly, listen, it has nothing to do with the fact that you are weak. In fact, the problem may be that you're not weak enough. Are you weak enough for God to use you today? Are you weak enough to totally depend on the Lord for strength? Are you weak enough to stop believing in yourself? Are you weak enough to lean on others for help? Are you weak enough to be on your knees petitioning God for strength more often than on your feet pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps? God uses weak people, not gospel superstars. We must care more about Christ's reputation than our own Boldness and power flows from fear and weakness in the right sense of that. You say, why? Why is it that that's the case? Because Paul says here, God wants to put on a demonstration of spirit and power. Do you see that there? My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Again, going back to what he's already said, it's not that impressive, not from a human perspective. Here's what's impressive. It comes in a demonstration of spirit and power. Those are the same things in Paul's mind. Paul is equating those two things, the spirit and power. In other words, when we embrace our weakness, the power of God blazes through. God gets to be the one whose glory is manifested, not ours. The demonstration of spirit and power. You say, well, what, what does that exactly mean? Are we talking about miracles here? No, no, that would go right in the face of what Paul has already said to them. The, 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 the Greeks seek for signs. They, they want miracles. The Jews search for signs. They want to see demonstrations of miraculous power. No, no, what Paul is talking about here is, is something more profound than an external miracle. He's talking about an internal miracle. He's talking about a supernatural reality that only God can change the heart of a sinner. Only God can open the eyes of a blind person, spiritually speaking. Only God can be responsible for the salvation of a sinner. Not you, not me, not the messenger, not the one who receives the message. Only the Spirit of God gets the glory for the salvation of sinners because he and he alone ultimately does the work. That's what he's talking about here. This is so freeing though, isn't it? Like, I love what Spurgeon used to say. He said, I preach as if it all depends upon me, but I sleep as if it all depends upon God, right? 
Like we preach with passion, we communicate with boldness, with love and gentleness, we pray fervently, but at the end of the day, we can lay our head on our pillow at night believing that the only work that ultimately matters in this whole scenario is the work that only the Spirit of God can do in the hearts and life of an individual. This is why we said to the parents, the parents are up here, you can't make your kids a Christian. You can't save them. The Spirit of God must do that through the work of God. Now, he uses the means of the Word of God proclaimed to the people of God. Amen? God wants it so clear in our lives and in this church. Listen, the reason we, we stand firm on bold preaching is because we want this to be a place where God gets all the glory. God gets the glory, God gets the glory, God gets the glory. And this is why, lastly, bold preaching does not confuse the goal. Bold preaching does not confuse the goal. Paul elaborates on what this is, this demonstration of the spirit of power with the purpose. Look at this. That or so that. It's the purpose statement. Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God, that your salvation, your strength, and your confidence isn't attached to some man-made idea or or some man-made religion or some man-made effort. It's attached to the power of God, to his word, to his truth, to his gospel, the good news that God loved you so much he sent his only son to die in your place that he rose from the dead, defeating death, that all who put their faith, who believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus can have life and have it to the fullest, can have their sins washed away, can live as a redeemed individual, redeemed from all of the consequences and punishment for sin, redeemed from the alienation that that exists between you and God. That chasm is bridged through the gospel of Jesus Christ all through the power of God. We preach boldly and biblically so that others might put their trust in God and not in our wisdom. We don't come to people and say, here's my opinion of what's going to save you. We come to people and say, here's the truth of how God wants to save you. This is what God says. There's an old story of two pastors, one pastor visiting another pastor's church, good friends, longtime friends, both seasoned pastors in the ministry and the pastor who had just finished preaching comes down and he's sitting with his, his friend, the other pastor who is visiting from out of town and he's talking about what God is doing in the church and, and he looks over and sees a man uh, doing some kind of ministry activity and, and, and the preacher of that church looks into his friend and you see that man over there? That, that's one of my converts. One of mine, not the Lord's. It's a powerful reminder, listen, that People so easily attach themselves to others, but don't necessarily attach themselves to the Lord. And the goal in Paul's heart and mind was not to create followers of Paul, but followers of Christ. You see, the purpose of bold preaching is not to win arguments. It's not to simply present facts. It's not to demonstrate how smart we are or how intellectual we are. It's not simply to change people's behaviors or to give them a better moral system to follow. It's not about ultimately a better society. No, it's not. It has one primary all-surpassing goal and that is the hearts and souls of individual people. 
Many other good things flow from that, but make no mistake about it, the heart and soul of the gospel is the heart and soul of, of individuals. That people would build their lives on a new foundation, not on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Not on satanic, satanic error, but on the gospel truth. The power of the gospel brought through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the foundation of our faith. And the means God has chosen to spread the faith, to build the foundation, and to grow the church is bold preaching. The goal of all preaching is the salvation of sinners, the sanctification of the saints, and most importantly, the glory of the Savior. Bold preaching through weak messengers with a foolish message so that God gets all the glory when his power and his power alone saves and sanctifies. There's really only one question left to answer as we close here together. Who? I mean, whose job is this? You're like, really, Ian? We're looking at you. Certainly, certainly this is mine uh, from the standpoint of formal ministry in the life of the church. Yes, I take that, I, I, I bear that, and I, I love that. But I just need you to know that you and I, if you're a follower of Christ here today, you and I bear the same responsibility to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have all taken upon ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ the responsibility to proclaim the truth. You know, last Sunday as we, we ended our service, when we were looking at fervent prayer, I read from Acts chapter four, the, the early church, as they gathered together in the face of opposition, they gathered together and they rallied with, uh, with one voice, they called out upon God, they prayed to God that he would give them all that they needed for the mission that he had given them. And we saw last week that the spirit of God answered in such a mighty and visible way it said in Acts chapter four that the, the Spirit of God shook the house they were all meeting in and they were all filled with the power of the Spirit of God. And then it says, listen, it ends on this and it's so fitting that we end here once again. And they continued speaking the word of God with boldness. Every believer, everyone who was a part of the church, by the way, that was the entire church at the time. There was no other church. This was the church. Every believer given the same responsibility. Every believer endowed and filled with the same power of God. Every believer called and sent to the same mission to listen, being filled with the Spirit of God. To continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Church, with God's help, this is who we are. And with God's help, this is who we will continue to be. Also that the world will praise and glorify the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. God in heaven, we pray that you would make this so. God, we see in scripture so clearly the weight of responsibility you have given to us. And God, our, our desire is to not shrink back from boldly declaring the truth of the gospel, from boldly declaring your word and speaking the, the word that saves, the word that satisfies. But instead, Father, to call out to you even now, to depend upon you, to say, God, that we are weak. Father, that we are weak and, and inadequate, 
Who is adequate for such things, Lord, is the echo of our hearts, even now in this moment. Father, we are not adequate, and Lord, we boldly declare that truth. We embrace that truth because we know, God, that where we celebrate that truth in our lives, we see the power of you, our God, manifest in and through us. And God, we long to be the church that boldly preaches, that boldly speaks the word of God because because we know that so much is at stake, Lord. So much is at stake, Lord. The lost and dying world around us and the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. God, would you now increase our desire to see the name of Jesus praised and glorified across this world and would we see, Lord, our part in that. That you have come Lord, so that we would do that here and now, and you've come, Lord, so that others can join us. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Do a mighty work in and through us, we pray. Not for our sake, but for yours, O Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen.